How exactly is it that a person who is not gay comes to believe, really believe, that they are gay for two years? Well, one of the contributing editors to this very radio program, Nancy Updike, had that experience herself. And she says she did not just turn herself into any kind of gay person. No, no, no. In her case, it was total, complete, full-hearted, unambiguous commitment. Completely, completely and utterly. I worked at a gay newspaper. I only hung out with gay people. In my spare time, I read about gay history. I dressed like a dyke. You know, my hair was, I mean, if you know, you know me now um, mm-hmm. as kind of a femi person. <laughs> yeah, kind of a very femi person. Yeah. I cut my hair short, and I didn't wear any makeup, and I sort of dressed to hide my body. And I had male friends that I called Mary. And uh, and, and so was there any, any kind of limit uh, to, to, to your gayness? Um, yeah. The limit was that I really kind of couldn't bring myself to actually sleep with women. So that seems like that would be kind of a problem. It was. It was. I mean, at the time, it was sort of like, well, I'm in this difficult transition, and, you know, and I'm sure I'm just a, I'm sure I'm just about to do that. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. Um, right. You know, it was like a loose end. I hadn't tied up yet. And it was like, oh, it was like, it's like that, you know, that, that squeaky door to the shed. You keep meaning to fix it. And every weekend it's like, oh, I guess I forgot to fix the squeaky door. And um, I mean, I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to. So how does somebody who feels that way come to think that they're gay in the first place? When Nancy had just gotten out of college, she moved to a new city. Her parents were going through a bitter divorce. All her college relationships with boys had been disasters. Or that's how it felt at the time, anyway. So I was really unhappy, and I felt um, that this must be the explanation. I can't, I can't make these relationships work. They seem so awful. You know, part of what was awful was that I, like, I never trusted them. Like, I, you know, all my close friends are women, and, you know, and I love my women friends. And it just seemed like sort of a short leap to like well maybe maybe I'm in love with with you know like maybe maybe that's what's going on like maybe that's maybe that's the problem right and right you had heard stories about people like you where their relationships hadn't worked out and they were unhappy all the time and it turns out they were gay that was the problem yeah yeah and like once you know it, it's it's like a, a you know a snowball rolling downhill like once you once you get the ball started you start to accumulate evidence in your mind that that's in fact the case. It's like, remember that little friend, you know, you had in in fourth grade? Well, maybe you loved her, you know, you guys were so close. Hmm. And, you know, maybe, you know, the fact that you, you, you know, you like to wear pants, well, that's part of it. You know, you're a little, like you were a little butch, like you like to wear pants in high school when the other girls like to wear skirts. Just like, you know, you really start to, or at least I did, really start to sort of put everything together to make that the story. Wow. Um, Because I really, I really, really wanted to believe this story. Do you remember the first step you took? Well, the very first step was probably breaking up with my boyfriend. Right. (laughs) Um, But the step after that, I joined... um, (laughs) 
I joined a, a lesbian feminist reading group and it was just like history and herstory and humanity and humanity and I mean I knew at the time like <laughs> this is not helping me. So for two years, this is how it went. Nancy was a reporter for the Philadelphia Gay News. She thought of herself as gay. Gay men and women would talk about how they grew up, feeling like they were so different from their families, biding their time until they could leave home and be themselves. And Nancy felt like that was her story, too. It had been her story, except for the gay part. Nancy had never wanted to marry or have kids, and she loved that now she was surrounded by people who didn't want to marry or have kids. After a while, she did start to go out with a woman, but it was awkward and it was terrible. And reality started to set in. Little things would happen that would make her question what she was doing. One day, one of her coworkers, a gay man, was heading out of the office for lunch. And he came up behind me and he started, he started rubbing my back, you know, giving me a, a shoulder rub. And um, it was, I mean, it was kind of like, like, the, like the plug in the socket like it was just electric. It was the first time I had been touched on my skin by a man in a couple of years. And I I just in my head I was just like Nancy, you've you've got to give this up. Within a week she started going around to people she knew. She'd already come out as a homosexual to family and to friends, which is a tough thing for anybody to do. And now, incredibly, she had to come out again as straight which was even harder because she was so embarrassed. And it was hard not being part of a group anymore. I felt, I felt so sad to, to leave that. I felt alone. I felt like, you know, I'm really on my own. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today in our program, my experimental phase... Stories of people who are very unhappy, who decide to become somebody different, and love being somebody different, and then have to choose whether to go back being the person they once were. Act one of our program, funny, you don't look Jewish. In that act, a man who's living essentially like a very devout 19th century Polish villager jumps forward two centuries, starts watching TV, and changes very, very fast. Act two, Miami Vices, in that act, a middle school student switches schools and tries out an entirely new personality. Stay with us. Akwan, that's funny, you don't look Jewish. This story takes place in Williamsburg, a neighborhood in Brooklyn where different worlds collide, or at least warily orbit around each other. There's hipster Williamsburg, which is filled with galleries and studios and restaurants and night spots and lots of aspiring artists and musicians. And then there's Hasidic Williamsburg, which is pretty much stuck in the 19th century. You've, you've probably at least um, seen pictures of the Hasids at one point or another. These are the religious Jews who shun just about everything modern. The women all wear long dresses. Most of them wear wigs. All the men wear identical black suits, white shirts, black hats, and... um. They have that hair thing, you, you may have noticed, something called payas, the long curls that fall near their sideburns, down their face, in front of their ears. These two Williamsburgs don't interact much. They hardly even acknowledge each other, except on very rare occasions. 
David Siegel is a staff writer and the former rock critic of the Washington Post. And he tells the story of one of those occasions. It's hard to imagine this about a group of people living one subway stop from Manhattan, but the hostages of Williamsburg know next to nothing about the world outside of their enclave. And that's the way they want it. The Bible, they say, tells them to keep separate from everyone else, to build boundaries that are as thick as possible. Their outfits are meant to set them apart. And then there's the language barrier. Though nearly all of these people are born and raised here in the U.S., Yiddish is the only language most of them truly know. None of us know English because we don't talk English at home. We, we study English class one hour a day. This is Haim. He didn't want us to mention his last name. For good reasons, as you'll find out later. Boys and girls are completely divided. There's no movies. Uh, we don't know anything about the world. We don't, we don't know any celebrities. Had you heard of MTV? Not even close. We didn't even know radio. We know we didn't even. We never heard radio. Not even uh, AM. You know what I mean? <laughs> so if someone had mentioned the Rolling Stones or U2 or other rock bands, you would not have recognized those names. Rolling Stones, I would think it's something something that injured somebody. I wouldn't. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't know what Rolling Stones means. At the time the story begins, one night, years ago, Haim is 20 and single, which in the Hasidic community is a problem. The problem, though, has a highly ritualized solution. Through matchmakers, a groom-to-be is sent on what sounds more like a job interview than a date. The guy meets the father of the potential bride, and he peppers the young man with questions. If the father likes the answers, the guy meets the daughter, and after a brief meeting or two, the pair decide whether to marry. Well, Haim had been on a few of these outings, and he kept flunking the father interview. On the night in question, his would-have-been father-in-law asked Haim if he would stay in school, in yeshiva, and study full-time. It'd be prestigious having a scholar in the family. But Haim had told him the truth, that yeshiva didn't interest him much. When he was rejected, not for the first time, his family thought he'd screwed up again. When I got home, everybody was telling me, why didn't you tell them at least that you would, and then, you know, you don't have to do, but, you know... Everybody was on me, and, you know, I, I was not very happy because I was not, uh, you know, most of us go at the age of 18, 18, 19, 20, you know, 21. Most of my friends were, were married already. You know, some of them had kids. And they were, I felt like they were, the blame was on me why I'm not married or something like that. Now, to understand what happens next, you have to know that Haim was the Hasidic version of a rebellious teen. He'd snuck away to watch an American movie or two, and had recently become a baseball fan. And on a few occasions, when he felt especially hassled by his family, he'd headed to a bar for a beer. Which is what he did this evening, a local bar called The Right Bank, where a man named Billy Campion happened to be performing. Billy was jumping up and down on the bar like a gorilla in a cage, bellowing at the top of his lungs and playing a guitar. Haim watched and was amazed. It was just loose. It was just, you know, flying. Everything was rocking. It was, he was performing wild. He was, you know, jumping on chairs and throwing all kind of stuff. And, they, you know, it was cool to see how somebody was so free. You know, and that's exactly what I wanted. I was so tight at that time. I was, you know, I wanted to get loose a little bit. So during the break, um, I see this very tall... Hasidic guys sitting at the bar, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer, and watching a baseball game. This is Billy Campion, known to the world and indie music fans as Vic Thrill. 
On the night that he was pogoing on the bar, Billy lived a few blocks and several centuries away from Heim in the other Williamsburg. Billy wears space glasses and second-hand tuxedos, and his hair is spot-dyed a different color every couple weeks. But he's one of these guys who greets everyone on his block by name, from other scenesters to cashiers who work in the bodegas. So it bugged him for years that there was this huge population in his neighborhood, the Hasids, whom he knew nothing about and never spoke to. And a few weeks prior to the show at the right bank, he decided to do something about it. I actually asked God if he would introduce me to a Hasidic Jew that wouldn't mind showing me about the culture. I wanted to relate, you know what I mean, to people who seem so different. You actually prayed to God about this? Yeah, I was standing in my place, looking out my window at faces south towards the Hasidic community. And, uh, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I need to bounce it off a satellite, you know what I mean, to get it over the top of the neighborhood. I, I figured I had to come in from above to get in there. That night at the bar, though, Billy wasn't really thinking about any of that. He just spotted Haim and introduced himself. So I started talking to him, and I didn't realize this was the godsend yet, you know? And uh, I was like, how's it going? He's like, good, and less music. And I was like, thanks a lot, man. I was like, you, you really liked it? You know, I was surprised, you know? I used to also make music songs, you know, songs. And uh, so when I saw Billy that night, I felt like, okay, now I have a connection. I can become, there was never a chusid that ever became a, a, a rocker. I was like, um, I have a recording studio up the street. I would love to have you by sometime, you know, if you really want to get these recordings down, you know what I mean, in, in a quality way. And uh, like, oh, maybe I'll take you up on it, you know. So I gave him my phone number and, and I forgot about it. My parents didn't really uh, show, I didn't feel appreciation from my uh, songs. My father never gives a compliment. He doesn't even know how to take one. Not be, he's a very nice guy, my father, but he just, he doesn't know how to give a compliment. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I had somebody that I was able to talk to, you know, I was totally, you know, for it, for him. And the first chance that I had to come to the studio, I snuck in here and I was here. I got a phone call one day. He said, yeah, hello. And I was like, hi. He's like, uh, this is Chaim. We met down at the bar the other night. He's like, I wanted to come check out your studio. So I was like, I would love that, you know what I mean? And uh, he came here, and next thing you know, he didn't leave for a year and a half. The here that Billy's talking about is a converted industrial garage, which served as the apartment, recording studio, prop warehouse, and party headquarters for Billy and a group of his friends. They called it the Vic Thrill Salon. It's here that Vic Thrill's musical debut, CE5, was recorded. And if I could editorialize for a moment, it's really superb. One of the best albums of 2003. Sci-fi pop with lots of hooks, deadpan humor. Like Devo, but a little more raw. Victor Salon is a sort of thrift store version of Andy Warhol's factory. At any given moment, musicians with names like Trans Pop Loops or Saturn Missile could be jamming on the couch. 
People with video cameras came and went. A rock and roll manager named Mary Mayhem, who dealt cocaine from her purse, was a regular. Into this chaos walked Heim, wearing a buttoned-up black suit and a rabbinical beard. If he'd been searching for the polar opposite of his Hasidic life, he couldn't have done better. But what intrigued him the most was something found in just about any den in the U.S. It was the television. He watched everything. Everything from, like, cheesy Aaron Spelling shows to, like, like five straight hours of MTV. I would be able to sit here about five hours or more. I would sit here... I was a heavy smoker. I was there for hours just watching, soaking in television. His favorite channel, of all the channels he watched, was MTV, because of the years he'd spent writing songs in his spare time. His stuff was mostly biblical prayers set to melodies he'd made up, something like this, his rendering in Hebrew of the 23rd Psalm. MTV caused Haim to give up the Old Testament as a muse and start writing pop in English. But the guy was the cultural equivalent of an unfrozen caveman. Everything was new. Nothing had context. You take someone like that and expose him to daily and lethal doses of music television, something strange is bound to happen. He, he would not differentiate between, you know, Britney Spears, you know, and Eminem. He just thought music, like, that's good, that's not good, that's, I like that, I don't like that, you know. He didn't yet know anything about, like, you know, genres or categories, you know, like, or what kind of demographic is into that, and he just didn't care. So he was writing music that went from, like, very, you know, um, very sensitive love songs, you know, about, like, the show Pacific Blue. Midnight blue, you're so sweet when you come true. Pacific blue. I had this one song, it goes like this. When I wrap my arms around you, I feel your heartbeat. It's a time bomb to explode. Love is the ammunition. Sparkle, sparkle, beautiful eyes. Twinkle, twinkle, beautiful lips. Warm me, warm me, beautiful body. Oh, you're such a hottie. The meal's being served, but you know what's being observed. A little touching under the table, whoa, who needs cable? And uh, a lot of the stuff doesn't make sense, like in Welcome to the Millennium. It heals our wounds, da-da-da-da, a happiness I'd never pretend. Well, like, stuff wouldn't make sense. But the problem was that my lyrics, but usually when I did write, because my vocabulary was so small and my English was so poor, it was funny. Like any kid who discovers music for the first time, this guy was blossoming at such an incredible rate of creativity. The most prolific being you've ever seen in your life, you know? And he's saying to me, he's like, you know, I'm on my way to yeshiva, you know, and I'm singing these melodies, you know, on the sidewalk, and you know, uh, you know I have these melodies, you know what I mean, and I, and I have these good, you know, uh, you know, verbal ideas, you know, that I can, uh, but I go, into, uh, I go into yeshiva, and I start the class, and, uh, and I forget them. And uh, I just need a way to remember these things, you know? So I said, well, I mean, it would be good if you had like a portable cassette player or something like that, but um, he wasn't going to have one anytime soon and his allowance was small. And so I was like, "What? you know what I do in a jam? I call my answering machine. And, uh, and man, he heard that, man. And he just, that was the solution right there. And he was like, oh, that's a good idea. Well, I find out he doesn't have an answering machine. But of course I do. Message one. 
It got to the point where I couldn't even check my own messages anymore because he was filling my answering machine with new song ideas from payphones all over the city. You know what I mean? Here's trucks whizzing by in the background. You know what I mean? This guy's like, I don't know. That's the keyboard line for the second verse of, uh, of uh, Midnight Blue. You know, and then like, you know, he hangs up the phone. Message six. She comes from nowhere. Her feet make it bare. But when you see her dance, if I'd only know in advance. I had become um, aggravated by him because he was coming around every day for no less than six hours a day and watching TV. I said, if I didn't have a TV, would you be coming over here like, is it my friendship that you're totally looking for or are you looking to like watch some tube here, you know? And he goes, all right, all right, I got to admit it, you know what I mean? The TV is, it's, I'm addicted. I'm definitely addicted to the television and I need to do something about it. <laughs> and like, uh, he had been pestering me to write music with him. And I kept putting him off and putting him off. This guy's a pain in the ass, whatever. And then, uh, and then it dawned on me. That's when I said, "Oh my!" I was like, "This is, this is the moment." Yes, I'll definitely write some music with you. And I wanted to make it as easy as I could on myself. I just grabbed my guitar. I said, "Sing some of those lines to me there." "Welcome to the Millennium" was the first song that we ever wrote together. And I said, "Sing, sing, uh, sing the first verse to me," you know. So he's like, "Okay, here's the first verse. The first verse. Here comes the night." There is no light, it's so dark, it looks like the end, a cold wind blows, a scary noise, a situation I'd never pretend. So I was like, okay, that's the first verse, so it's like, let's hear it. So what's that? Is that, that's it. Here comes the night, there is no light, it looks like the sun came down to earth. So I just like put chords like directly to the vocal line. And this is like how I proceeded from that point on. A cold wind blows, a scary noise, a situation I'd never pretend. So that's what was happening, you know what I mean? And then finally I had to start booking shows. The first gig that, that I got him, the first gig was at this place, um, um, Joe's Pub, which is like a high profile joint. It's like what I would consider to be like a double velvet rope affair. I mean, you gotta be somebody to get into the place, you know? I mean, there's like James Eha, the guitarist from Smashing Pumpkins, you know, standing online with like, you know, some kind of supermodel. You know, it's like these are the kind of people that are standing online there, you know what I mean, to get in. On the night of the performance, Vic and the band headed on stage in their regular outlandish gear. Haim was dressed in traditional Hasid clothes, black pants, white shirt, yarmulke. He was introduced as the craziest Jew since Goldberg, the professional wrestling star. I felt like, you know, that scene in like Young Frankenstein, 
you know, like, ladies and gentlemen, the monster, you know, like, you know, and then this guy comes out on stage, you know, like, that's what it was like, like, he came out on stage, people were just like, people were just like, what the hell is this? His performance was like a mixture between like, you know, like Eminem, or, you know what I mean, like Snoop Dogg, you know, like pointing in people's faces and like just the most demonstrative, like, you know what I mean, hand gestures you've ever seen in your life. And then throwing kicks up in the air like a Hasidic wedding. You know, he's like mixing like this like Jewish dancing with what he's seen on MTV, you know? And it was so over the top and people were like, at first people were like, you know, like a dog that's just been shown a card trick, you know what I mean? Like people were baffled. <laughs> And, uh, and then all of a sudden, I was like, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is a real Hasidic man. And then the place just out of their seats hit the dance floor and went ballistic. I mean, just, they loved it. They flipped, you know? And he became like an instant star, you know? He was like this underground star, you know? Coming up, putting the Sabbath back into Black Sabbath, the life of an underground Hasidic glam rock star. That's in a minute. Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, my experimental phase, stories of people who take on a new identity as a lark and then start to face some serious choices. David Siegel's story about Chaim continues, a warning that they mention the existence of sex in a general way in What's About to Follow, uh, the story at this point, by day, Chaim was a typical young Hasid living with his parents. By night, he was on the rock scene, the underground rock scene. Here's David. A typical day went like this. He'd get up in the morning, tell his mom and dad he was going to yeshiva, cut class, and head to Billy's. He'd watch TV, eat, talk, hang out, watch more TV, and go home for dinner. Then, at nights when he was performing, he'd head out again this time with his concert outfit tucked into a bag. He was really getting into the costumery of what we were doing. So the only costumery he had was Purim clothes, which is, you know, the Jewish Halloween, basically, you know. Um, they get all dressed up, you know. And, and so he had all his Purim clothes, so that became his gig outfits. You know, like this, this like, gold sequin cape with, like, gold, like, tinsel, you know, and, like, this big, like, like, it was, it was almost like Hebrew Flava Flav style necklace. It was like Superman style, you know. He would show up Hasidic with a little bag or something like that. And then he would go into the bathroom and just transform, you know. He said to me, you know, I need a name. I need, you know, you guys got a name. You know, you Vic Thrill, you know what I mean. You got Saddle Missile, you know what I mean. Everybody needs a name, you know. So I was thinking about, uh, you know, maybe I should have one. I said, that's cool. Have you thought of anything? Well, I've thought of a couple, you know. I don't know if I... I got this one, you know. I got this one that sounds kind of cool, you know. I was like, what's that? He says, uh, curly oxide. Curly oxide. It, it came into me, you know. I have pairs, curls, curly. And then I wanted something like edgy, you know. From what I've seen, the culture of, uh, of music has to be like some sort of, you know, like, you know, more, a little edgy. Oxide came into him, I don't know why. So, curly oxide. And I go, that's great. Like, 
I played it down my reaction. I was like, that's great, man, that's great. Why is it great? He was like already suspicious. Huh? See, it's are suspicious, man. They, they, you know, they look right through you. He goes, why is that, why is that great? And I, he said, what does it mean? I said, well, curly, you know. Yeah, I know what curly means. You know, I got the pace, you know. I got, what about oxide? Oxide, you know, oxide is rust, you know what I mean? It's like uh, on metal, if you leave it out in the rain, it turns orange. I don't know if I like that. <clears throat> oxide is oxidation. It's about uh, something undergoing change, uh, transformation from one thing into another thing. I like that. I, li I like the sound of that because, you know, I'm, uh, I I'm undergoing a, a, a transformation. I, I am undergoing a transformation into curly oxide. So then you began performing pretty regularly with him. I mean, did he get a reputation? Did people find out about him? Oh yeah, yeah. He would he would perform then regularly down at the Right Bank, and then we would have him come up and play for the bigger Vic Thrill shows. You know, Mercury Lounge, Bowery Ballroom, the West Beth Theater when that was still around. You know, and uh, people loved it. This is Curly Oxide on a typical night at the Right Bank in a video recorded for the Vic Thrill Salon. The Right Bank is a cramped little club without a stage. The crowd gawks and dances, and Curly holds the microphone with both hands, like someone's gonna try to steal it from him. On nights like this, women occasionally threw their underwear at him. He had a song in the club jukebox. He'd become a local phenomenon. He stood out at the same time began to fit in. I, I witnessed an accelerated adolescence with this guy. In the course of a year and a half, I went, I watched a guy go from 13 to 20 years old, you know? Deep inside, a lot of people have, uh, I would call, uh, the beast of within. You know, when you see sometimes people get drunk or they feel like there's a moment that now they can be what they really want to be and nobody will accuse them of being that image, they would just do it. They would just be like crazy and throwing stuff and uh, I mean, I would be insane. I would be like doing certain sounds and stuff and dancing like... I felt like uh, doing whatever I intend on doing and nobody can stop me and being appreciated for it. <laughs> Was it satisfying? Oh, absolutely. Hell yeah. He inspired everybody. He lit a fire under everybody's ass in this place. He was so unafraid. And I think that, you know, it, like you envied that, you know? He hadn't been told yet you know what I mean, that he was going too far in any way. And I think that a lot of people, like, over the course of their lives, if you started at 13 years old, you may have been burned by some extremes here and there, you know, and he hadn't been. And these are all little horses that we fail to get back on, you know, um, when we've been hurt. And he hadn't experienced that yet. And it definitely caused me to get back on some horses, you know what I mean? And not be so embarrassed, you know, and self-conscious, you know what I mean, about the way I perform.
But the life of a Hasidic rocker has some built-in complications. Haim dreamed about singing Welcome to the Millennium for a crowd of millions in Times Square, a New Year's Eve of 2000, but he dropped that plan when he realized the date fall on the Sabbath, when work was out of the question. For a while, for more than a year in fact, he nurtured Curly Oxide, but he was a Hasid too, and he knew he couldn't be both people for very long. He began dropping hints to his parents about his secret life, and he got sloppy about concealing the evidence of his alter ego. His mother found lyrics in English that he'd left lying around. His father found a fan letter in a pocket of his pants. Plus, he was coming home later and later, three, four, five in the morning. Sometimes his parents would be up waiting for him, distraught. My parents were like, killing me, you, you know, you, you, you make me have a heart attack and, you know, it's not good for you and you're going to regret it and whatever, you know. They, they tried to talk because they knew that they, they couldn't go in a strict way because they knew that, you know, any strict thing they do, I'm out. And uh, I, didn't, I wouldn't say anything. I would just, you know, dump myself into bed and it, it would bother me. And what am I doing? You know, it hurts them. And, you know, uh, I, would, I, would, I would try to turn them up against their feelings and, you know, to uh, numb. I started to actually get phone calls here. I had caller ID and I saw his last name on it. And he was here. And I was like, oh wow, I guess it's just started. Because I've seen Hasids go down to the right bank and pull Hasids out of there, saying you shouldn't be in there. And then argue with the people in there that were arguing on the behalf, non-Hasidic people, arguing on the behalf of the guy who was in there. And they say, you stay out of this. You stay out of this, this is none of your business, you know? And I felt like, uh-oh, this is about to happen with me. Haim's parents never confronted Vic, but they weren't about to lose their son without a fight. They began a massive hunt to find Haim a wife as quickly as possible. They called everyone they knew, took recommendations from relatives. They networked with matchmakers. But Haim was inching further and further away. He'd saved up some money, he was taking bartending classes. He had an exit strategy. Basically, a race was underway. His parents were trying to find him a wife before he actually leapt into the secular world for good. Oddly enough, the secular world seemed to be rooting for his parents. At one point, he was going to cut the curls. He told me he wanted to move in with me and he wanted to cut the curls. And, you know, jokingly, but, you know, with serious undertones, I said, if you cut the curls, you're out of the band. You know, I was like, I'm telling you, man. If you cut the curls, we have no act. That's what I'm saying to you. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, as the managerial type, you know, as the music business type, you know, the, the talent manager. I was mainly worried that the act um, was going to lose its luster if he became like us. And that it was going to turn into bad music, you know? And... Um, the innocence, I think another big thing is that the innocence would be lost and the innocence is where he was creating from. I just didn't want him to cross over entirely, you know? I didn't want to be responsible for that. Um, you know, I could have gotten him on Howard Stern. Stern would have eaten that up, you know? And. Part of me, like a selfish part of me, would have liked to have seen that, you know? 
stardom, you know what I mean? Like, of the, being a character. But he, he was a prime candidate for that. Um, but I didn't want to, like, I, I didn't want to, uh, I've heard that if a Hasid decides to cut the curls and, and leave the sect, the family is, uh, I think they sit Shiva, actually. I think the parents sit Shiva as if he's dead. Um, so I, I didn't want to be, you know what I mean, the arch enemy of his family, you know? Haim, as it happens, had reservations of his own about abandoning the Hasidic world. I was very torn. I was just torn. I mean, I, all along I knew that what I was doing was not in, in line with my upbringing, with, with, with the Hasidic way, with the Torah way of, of uh, life. So I knew that I wasn't doing something right, but I liked it, and I felt that I was accepted. So I had these two paths, and I said, I can't choose. I'm, I don't know. I, lo I, I love both. As he said at one time, my parents are desperately trying to find me a wife. And I really want a record deal. But if they find me a wife first, or if I get the record deal, it's God's will. And I'm going to do that. A record deal or a wife. If Heim thought the choice was in the hands of the Lord, he'd underestimated his mother, who called him one night while Heim was in Manhattan, getting ready for a show. A certain young lady would be at a certain wedding that evening, she told him, and maybe Heim could swing by and take a look. At first he said no and begged off with a few excuses, but his mother then sounded so sad he felt a wave of guilt and reconsidered. Heim changed back into his Hasidic clothes and went to the wedding, where he eventually got a quick glance at this young lady from a distance in a parking lot. Heim was not impressed. I was like, for this, so you had to, you know, that made me again come, you know, okay, another bust. So I went home, I said, for this, you, you know, I mean, next time before you send me somewhere, you know, just look, ask us, you know, get information of what we're talking about. So I went back down to the basement, I got back dressed, and I went to perform that night. Uh, you know, till four o'clock in the morning. But the girl felt differently. It turned out that she liked him, and that softened him just a little. Enough to get Haim to agree to a date, a Hasidic date, in her living room, surrounded by family. My parents were sitting in the kitchen, and the, there was no door, and I felt totally uncomfortable. <laughs> what we're talking about for, mm, I would say, maybe 45 minutes. This is the first time you'd spoken to her? Right. Um, there's nothing, you know, there's not too much to converse. You know, you go, you went to the yeshiva, and what do you want to the kids? And, you know, where do you want your kids to go to the yeshiva? And to which yeshiva? Because there's like all kinds of yeshivas and stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, it was just, I wasn't, you know, crazy over it because I was in a totally different world at that time. You know, obviously, I was, I was curly oxide, and all of a sudden I'm, thrown back into this other, this other, you know, personality. I mean, you know, I was totally two different persons. The matchmaker calls, calls in and, and talks to my mother and says, they want to finish it. I mean, the girl wants me. That was it, you know. We're married, I have two beautiful children. Oh, wait a second. And, uh, <laughs> wait a second. That's about it. <laughs> Let's back up. It was that quick? You, yeah. You, you, yeah. We spoke 
Saturday night and we became engaged. There was an engagement party the next day. They were indeed married three months later. This might sound incredibly fast, but in the Hasidic tradition, no one marries for love. That comes later, hopefully. And though Haim had spent far more energy dreaming about the billboard charts than about being a husband, he knew in the back of his mind that a day of surrender was probably inevitable, and that it meant returning fully to the fold. No more rock star, no more carousing, the end of the beast within. But you knew that you were killing curly oxide at that moment. You agreed to get married. I know that uh, this this character is going down, yeah. We knew that it was just like a show, you know. We knew that the show is going to be up, and then, you know, there's going to be time to close it. Were you sad that the show was gonna, that show was going to be over? Um, I can put myself back in the moment, and I didn't think. I was just... Because my whole life came tumbling, because it was like... These two years were like so, it was, it was like so shaky and so, I, all of a sudden, okay, it came back though, you know, like, oh, you are normal, you know, you are getting married like everybody else. And I was like, I couldn't think, I, uh, I didn't even realize what was happening, you know. Were you relieved? Uh, to an extent. Billy, for his part, was kind of relieved too. And now, having chaperoned Heim through his world, he wanted at last to get a glimpse at Heim's, which would be tricky. You know, the toughest part of the whole thing was that he wasn't going to be able to invite me to the wedding. Because non-Hasidics are not allowed at the, at the wedding? Absolutely not. But we found, a, uh, we found a solution to that. We found a loophole to that soon enough, which was uh, he, hired, um, he hired Cass... Chris Cassidy, who was our videographer at the Victorville Salon, um, to film his wedding with me as the assistant. Um, you know, and at the time I had a uh, I had a, a green mohawk, which uh, I had to stuff under a hat. You know, I mean, a yarmulke would not have you know concealed this thing. So we went in there and we shot the wedding, and the wedding just was that was really like the the third stage of like the gift of you know on this divine gift of his friendship was to witness a Hasidic wedding. It was like nothing I had ever seen in my life. The fact that, you know, we got to see them married under the tent. It just seemed like such an ancient ceremony too, the ritual of it, you know, with her walking around him and the constant prayer that was going on, you know what I mean? I really felt like there was the love for these two, you know, how important it was that everybody gather around them and pray all together. And then going into the building um, to watch them run down the hallway and he's smiling, and I'm like, this is my old buddy, man. He's smiling at me. And I didn't realize that, like, this was the turning point. They turned off into a room, and that's where they go to consummate the marriage. Um, a small room, I think with a bed in it. And everybody just eats out in the hall, you know, out in the dining hall, which has a partition down the middle of it, and the men are on one side and the women are on the other side. And, uh, and then, so we had to leave the hall at that point when they had gone into the room. And uh, we were invited back in when they were being carried out on the chairs. And then they get placed down in their separate, you know, rooms there, you know. And, uh, and they have to dance with everybody in the room. He danced with hundreds of guys. I mean, it's incredible. The energy that you have to put out on your wedding night, if you're Hasidic, is just incredible. Now, his father had 
suspected something of me because uh, a few of the Hasidic guys at the wedding had winked at me and like come up and elbowed me and hey, hey like they they knew me you know what I mean from the from the, uh, the legend of curly oxide and like several of them had gone down to the right bank to try and you know because his song was in the jukebox they heard about that you know and like and uh, and so this guy was like a legend in his neighborhood you know what I mean and they were coming up to me and I think the father saw some of this going on and he would give me like what I call the skunk eye you know every once in a while you know like he give me like this hairy eyeball you know. And, uh, and I zoomed in on him, like, every time you do that. So I have, like, this up-close footage of, like, the hairy eyeball from his father. <laughs> it was incredible. And I never once, at the, at the very end of the whole thing, I walked up to him, because everybody was shaking his hands at that point, and Cash shook his hand. And I walk up and I shook his hand like a total stranger. And we had zero, you know, energy transfer between us in the old way. You know, we really blocked it off, and I just said, Congratulations, man. She seems like a beautiful bride. And that was it. You know? And we had a big laugh, boy, afterwards, though, when he showed up here, man. I mean, we laughed for like a half an hour over this whole thing. Years after that half-hour laugh, Billy Campion is touring as Vic Thrill, playing shows around New York and throughout Europe. If you ever catch his act, You'll witness a guy as antic as anyone you'll ever see on a stage. Pager on vibrate is how one observer put it. The unembarrassable style owes a little something to curly oxide. In the months after the wedding, every once in a while, Billy and Hyman would get together just to catch up. But almost immediately, Hyman and his family moved an hour upstate. Now he doesn't see Billy much. And in part, he relocated to avoid the temptation of his old ways. Then again, he doesn't sound like a man on the verge of a backslide. I didn't even I didn't even want to think of missing it because I'm missing it, meaning I'm I'm not there. So why even go there to feel missing it? You know, it's, it's, you know you blank out, you try you blank yourself out. I mean I I know that I can't have, what you know what I would like over there. So there's no you know and I like and I like my life now, and uh, I would lose everything, you know, going back, or, you know, so, I mean, there's, 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 too, there's too much to lose, and I know that I can't have it, so I wouldn't even uh, touch that. Does your wife know that you had this other life as curly oxide? Yeah, she actually does, I told her. I actually do regret telling her, because let me tell you a secret, I don't, know, I don't know if you guys are married, but anybody that is married, do not tell your wives your past, especially your troubled past. I mean, the stuff that you did, you know, your mischief uh, past. I asked Haim would he tell his son if the boy announced one day that he wanted to sing in a rock band. Haim almost frowned. I'd tell him to sing something traditional, he said, and songs that are in Yiddish. As for Curly Oxide, there's hardly a trace of his career anywhere. He never released a CD, and last year the right bank closed, and that unplugged the only jukebox in the world where you could hear his music. David Siegel is a staff writer for the Washington Post. He also has a website, www.jewsrock.org. Thank you.
Vices. His next story was recorded at a live stage show in Los Angeles called Mortified, in which everyday people stand up on stage and read from their own teenage diaries. One person who took the stage one night was Sasha Rothschild, uh, a quick warning for sensitive listeners that she mentions all kinds of fooling around with teenage boys in what follows. Hi everybody, my name is Sasha, and to give you a little background, um, I grew up in a very upper-class Jewish household in Miami Beach, and I went to elementary school, um, for elementary school I went to private school, and I hated it because the kids were really mean to me, so I really wanted to go to public school for junior high, and my parents let me, and this is what happened when I went to public school, and I'm 13 here. A lot happened today. I made out five times with Jose Polo. (laughs) He said I kissed like a rich girl. (laughs) He had the longest tongue. I really like his best friend Carlos. I think Carlos likes me. Jose and I are just good friends, but we fool around because we think each other is hot. (laughs) I am reading the diary of Anne Frank. It really means a lot to me. First of all, I'm Jewish, and that means a lot to me. Also, I recently got you and started writing in you. (laughs) The diary of Anne Frank has really inspired me. Anyway, Carlos and I finally made out. (laughs) Jessica is being a bitch. After I was with Carlos, I spent some time with Tyrone, Trayon and Tyrell. I love them. I like black boys much more than white boys. They're more fun. (laughs) It gets worse. (laughs) So much has happened. I went to a big party at Jira's house. The party was awesome. I got completely drunk and started talking to these older guys who had beer. They gave me a lot. (laughs) The older guys liked me and they wanted my phone number. I gave it to them. I'm worried though. I'm turning into a bad girl. My grades are dropping. I'm drinking a lot. I'm lying, etc. I don't want to tell Diego and Shane I'm only 13, but I also don't want to get raped or anything. I don't know what to do. I think I'm going to lose my virginity very soon. so much fun. So many guys like me. I'm so f***ing popular. My mind and body are 17, but I'm only 13. P.S. I have grown so much inside in the past few months. Hey, was up or down? I put the arrows up or down. Well, things are totally up with me. Helder and I are going out. I like him so much. He's so cool, nice, funny, caring, sensitive, and f***ing fine. (laughs) He has such a nice body. In the movie, Helder and I made out a lot, and we went to second over the shirt. It wasn't a big deal. Later, dude. I wrote later, dude, literally. Okay, a lot happened. First of all, Helder and I broke up yesterday. I dumped him, in parentheses. 
The day after we went out, I went to his house and we were in bed naked together. Don't ask me how that happened. <laughs> I wouldn't sleep with him and I think he got mad. Since then, it seemed all Helder wanted was to have sex with me. I broke up with him six days after we went out. I, literally I, because I'm hanging out with, you know, Cubans, so I'm trying to understand how to speak Spanish. I, well, a lot of has happened. I have been getting drunk and stoned every day. Also, Diego and I broke up. I didn't mind that he was a drug dealer, but it just wasn't working out anyway. Anna and I aren't friends anymore. Cricket and I are very good friends. And last but not least, I'm going out with Antonio. We have been together for nine days. I really like him. I'm planning on sleeping with him. Oh, and I tried cocaine. It's the coolest thing on earth. I think I'm addicted. Oh, well. continues. Antonio and I got into our first big fight last night. What a temper. We made up though. I like the way he makes me feel. I'm the woman and should be kept in my place. <laughs> of course he is a Cuban. Well, I gotta go change my tampon. At least I'm not pregnant yet. <laughs> <laughs> was up yo literally in the diary was up yo I have done flake five times today for those of you who might not know flake is a uh, you know pseudonym for uh, cocaine in case you're not cool okay I have done flake five times today I loved all of them I'm not doing any more for now at least I like it too much the high is worth the low I'm also trying to stop smoking pot. I'm getting really burnt. Instead, I'm smoking cigarettes and shoplifting. <laughs> I love it. I get such a head rush. Today, I stole three pairs of underwear, one bra, and two shirts. It was too easy. <laughs> We're nearing the end. Oh my God, it has to stop. It all has to stop. I'm going to change my life around. I snorted two huge bumps, and then I came down hard, real hard. <laughs> the high isn't worth the low anymore. <laughs> I have to stop hanging out with these people. I'm going to f up my life. I'm scared, really scared. Okay, this is a month later. Hi, I'm still alive and not pregnant yet. <laughs> I broke up with Antonio, and I'm going to N.A. I've been off cocaine and pot since October 2nd. I'm doing really good. I'm still having fun without totally going crazy. I think I'm going to sleep with Jason. <laughs> I really want to because he's so hot and he thinks I'm hot. So many people do. <laughs> yeah. I'm so popular and scandalous. <laughs> I'm leaving out so many details that I hope I don't forget, but my hand would hurt if I wrote them all down. 
It's time for a new diary, but this one will always be most memorable. Later, dude. Oh. <laughs> Sasha Rothschild is still not pregnant. She graduated from high school drug-free and with honors. She's now married, a writer living in Los Angeles. She was recorded at a show called Mortified. Thanks to David Nadelberg, who runs the show. More info at www.getmortified.com. Our program was produced today by Jane Feltis and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Wendy Dorr, Sarah Koenig, and Lisa Pollock. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Will Reichel. Special thanks today to Amy Bender and Mayfair Recordings. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our shows for absolutely free or buy CDs of them. Or you know you can download audio of our program at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for This American Life is provided by Volkswagen of America and their SUV, the Touareg, now featuring ABS, EDL, ESP, and a bunch of other acronyms that help provide comfort and control. Go acronyms. Learn more about Volkswagen's SUV, the Touareg, ASAP, at VW.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who can be heard at bars all over Chicago, walking up to young people and saying, I have a recording studio up the street. I would love to have you by sometime, you know, if you really want to get these recordings down, you know what I mean, in a quality way. Hey, worked on me. Back next week with more quality recordings of This American Life. R.I. Public Radio International.